Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler, and we have a lot to cover in this podcast episode. So uh, first, I think we should begin by clearing the air and uh, providing some information to the audience. Obviously, last week, um, there was a late episode. Uh, it didn't go up on a Thursday. It went up on a Friday, which, you know, is kind of a, a dead giveaway that something weird was going on. When I run the ship, it's usually a well-oiled machine. Things get posted on time. Uh, it was a rough episode. Well, when, when you're When you're actually around to run the ship. Correct. So yeah. I... Just so the audience is aware, I went on a very brief, uh, very well-earned vacation. It was a long weekend, and a lot happened in just a short period of time. It was 72 uh, very eventful hours where uh, I left town, um, and I, I mean, do, do you want to fill people in? I mean, I just, I would think it's important to cover this because, you know, for the last three years, I've been making art and trying to build something that's beautiful and something that uh, helps people. And in about 72 hours, you nearly threw that all away. I wouldn't say that. I would say for the last three years, you've been a domineering overlord, uh, like most bosses, uh, just completely throttling uh, the people who work under you. And so I and all of the other uh, Stronger by Science podcast guest co-hosts got together in your absence, and we unionized. So uh, while Eric was away, me and all of the other guest co-hosts that have been on this show, uh, we got together, we uh, joined the Screen Actors Guild, SAG, uh, as a subsidiary for fitness podcast co-hosts, and uh, we presented Eric with a union contract that, uh, you know, he was basically forced to sign because... As much as I hate to admit it, you are a talented podcaster, but you can't do it alone. You need your your stable, your bevy of uh, podcast co-hosts to keep to, to keep the the wheels turning. You know, keep things moving along. So we presented you with a contract that you essentially had to sign if you wanted the show to go on. And uh, yeah, so now we have. Uh, re-entered a working relationship now on more equitable footing no longer can management keep its foot on the throat of uh all of the other workers on this podcast and i i think overall it will be for the best yeah so just to give people uh, a more just to give people a look into my perspective here so about a day into my vacation uh my email inbox is just getting flooded with uh, you know messages. I'm getting paper mail sent to my vacation destination saying, Eric, what happened to the podcast? It's terrible. This is, I mean, the ratings were tanking. You can look on iTunes. It, it, you really, it was really a mess who you brought on here. But I, I can see that things are, are going wrong. I contact my legal team. They told me that surprisingly, what you did was uh, largely legal and I didn't have much recourse uh, and I was eager to get to the negotiating table because um, I lost access to all the accounts. I think that that was uh, not an appropriate way to handle things. But well, if you set your password as password, uh, it's not too hard to crack. But that is still illegal hacking, even if you did guess that eight uh, eight character password. 
But anyway, uh, we got to the negotiating table and I, we definitely can't move forward in a way that I would say is friendly, but we have reached a professional agreement and that's going to involve some title changes. So um, Greg, for now, is the permanent guest co-host um, and I am the special temporary primary host. So I think that those are really self-explanatory and very straightforward. Probably no need to elaborate. Um, and, for- and, and when you say for now, those are our titles for the next three years until we have to come back to the table and renegotiate the union contract. Um, and at that point, if you lock us out and call in Pinkertons, uh, you know, there might be some scenes that are more reminiscent of early 1900s labor history. So, uh, just be prepared for that. Yeah, and that's not the only change. Um, there are also some profit-sharing ramifications. Uh, the That document that you placed on my table, um, which I signed basically under duress, um, you made a cash grab. So up until this point, I had been taking 100% of the bulk supplements riches that have been coming our way because as the only host of the show, I think that makes sense. Um, but given the new contract that's in place, at least for now, uh, the podcast co-host union is going to be getting 5% of the profit from that arrangement. And that is moving forward. That's not, we're not going to go retroactively and calculate all that. Um, so I, I think um, it is what it is. And we will push forward and do our best and try not to let our personal issues bleed into the show because the show is about the viewers and the listeners. Okay. For sure. I, I just have two things to add. First, uh, you mentioned signing the contract under duress. I just want to get this on the record for anyone in law enforcement who is, is watching or listening to this right now. The gun that I was holding to his head as he signed those papers wasn't loaded. And just a, a quick bit of legal advice for anyone listening to this podcast, threatening someone with an unloaded firearm is actually completely legal. Uh, so any, any time you want to get something in life, just make sure you take the bullets, uh, out. And that's actually totally fine. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, second thing is this is actually a pretty historic moment. Uh, within a single week, the first, uh, Amazon shop unionized and the first fitness podcast co-host union started, uh, so this is this is really a momentous time in labor history. Yeah, and I'm gonna have to go update the disclaimer at the end of the show <laughs> and say we're we're not dietitians, we're not medical doctors, and would you believe it, we're also not lawyers. Uh, so do not take medical, legal, or any other type of advice from this show. Um, all right, so if you like the show and you want to support it, of course you can like, rate, and subscribe wherever you access it. Um, if you would like to help me personally, you could use the discount code SBSPOD over at BulkSupplements.com. That'll get you a 5% discount off of your order. And I need that now more than ever, now that I'm sharing a, a small portion of those profits with the union. Uh, in addition to support the show, you could sign up at the Mass Research Review, or you could subscribe to the Macro Factor Diet app. All right, for the content of this show, we're going to dive right in. We've got a nice Q&A episode. We've got a, quite a few listener questions that we'd like to answer. So, uh, Greg, you want to do the honors and start us off here? Uh, I, I do actually have a bit of a feats of strength segment oh, as well. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, so there there have been some big numbers hit recently, uh, starting with the biggest raw deadlift of all time. Or, uh, yeah, there, there hasn't been a bigger equipped deadlift than this in powerlifting either, I don't believe. Uh, Danny Grigsby uh, deadlifted 465 kilos or 1,025 pounds uh, in a meet about a week ago. Um, as mentioned, biggest uh, deadlift in powerlifting history. That breaks Benedict Magnuson's longstanding record of 1,015. And I got to say, this record was was good. I, I was, I, I'm a big fan of Benny Magnuson, but I think it was good to see his record fall because, you know, it was the biggest deadlift in powerlifting history, and it was, through no fault of Benny's, a somewhat sketchy record. Um, it was set in a meet that was it was set in a meet from a fed that was notorious for lifters you know doing an invitational meet for that fed i think it was called hardcore powerlifting uh hitting huge numbers and then never hitting them again uh and i don't believe this has been confirmed but there are rumors that maybe the plates used in those meets were special plates that had been uh, somewhat calibrated to go in the lifter's favor. <laughs> um, so, so they're calibrated, but not necessarily in the way you'd think. They're precise, but not accurate. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah calibrated, but not appropriately calibrated. So, um, yeah, th- I don't think that was ever fully confirmed, but th- there were enough lifters who were, you know, really high-level guys would set like a 50-pound PR in one of those meets and then never hit those numbers again. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, so regardless, I, I don't think there are any uh, any asterisks on this record. And also it was set in a full-power meet. So a lot of deadlift records are set in deadlift-only meets where the lifter just shows up, warms up, pulls a big deadlift, goes home. Um, which, you know, lets you be a little bit fresher from not having to squat and bench beforehand. This was done in a full power meet as well. Um, so you love to see it. Very good deadlift, uh, and you should check that out. Uh, also, recently there was um, uh, a, a big meet uh, here in America from... You know, I haven't been following all of the USAPL IPF drama as closely as I should have, but I, I think that this was essentially a meet for top-level kind of ex-USAPL lifters, like people who are, um, or maybe this is just the new IPF-affiliated uh, Fed in the US. I'm not totally sure. Whatever. Big meet recently. A lot of strong people there. Uh, and, and the talk of the town from that meet was uh, Jesus Oliveris. Um, so, okay, okay. So Jesus hit a big total and then there are going to be two French people after this. I debated before we started recording, do I try to pronounce names correctly or not? I, an unfortunate thing about being a Southerner is when I try to pronounce uh, foreign names or words correctly, it just sounds like I'm doing a really bad racist accent. <laughs> so, uh, Whatever, he's Jesus, and I'm not trying to do better than that. Uh, anyway, huge total. Uh, he totaled uh, 1,110 kilos, which I believe is only two and a half kilos under uh, Ray Williams' current world record. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is Jesus is only 23 years old. Whoa. So he has a ton of room to keep growing and improving in the sport. Um 
squatted close to a grand, 450 kilos, uh, binged 560 something, deadlifted high eights. Um, so just huge performance all around. Uh, and there's still so much room to grow in the sport from him. Then also last month, uh, the French powerlifting nationals took place and there were, there were several huge performances, but I think probably the two most impressive were from a couple of the lightweight women in the competition. So Tiffany Chapon, uh, she totaled, um, 921 and a half pounds, uh, for a new world record in the 105 or the 103 weight class, uh, I should say. And also she broke Chin Wei Ling's, uh, longstanding squat record in that weight class, which, uh, you know, you go back five years, like that was one of the strongest and apparently most untouchable lifts on the books. Like it, it was a big outlier, like that squat record. Um, so taking out that squat record and uh, Chin Wei Ling's total in the same meet, very, very impressive. Uh, and then uh, Naomi Alaber, uh, she totaled 981 uh, in the 114 pound weight class. And uh, she, she also squatted uh, 363, which I believe was a world record as well. Um, so two, two huge performances there. Um, you know, I think fringe powerlifting is, is on the come up right now. Um, we've also mentioned, oh, what is her name? Uh, Bavoli. I forget her, last, or her first name. Anyway, uh, there's another very, very top level uh, female French lifter right now, I think in the 152 class. And there are, there are a couple other, um, like youth or junior male deadlifters who are putting up some crazy numbers as well. So in terms of, uh, countries to watch in powerlifting, France is on the come up. Uh, don't sleep on the French. Good stuff. All right. Uh, do you want to jump into your Q and A or do you want me to kick things off? Yeah, you can kick it off. All right. So I had mentioned in a previous episode that I was going to cover this topic. So I wanted to make sure I covered it first so it didn't get pushed to yet a later episode. So uh, I got a question from Marvik Samut. Uh, the question was, uh, how do protein requirements scale? Is 70 grams per day really within the optimal range for a 40 kilogram person? Conversely, do 150 kilogram behemoths really need upwards of 300 grams. Um, so this is a good question. And you might be a bit surprised to learn that there's not as much uh, direct evidence related to this question as, as you might expect. Um, you know, it seems like a pretty fundamental, pretty foundational question. Um, so I want to dive into it because I... I um, you know, I've seen this debate happen uh, on the internet in a few different places, and there's usually a couple studies that get kicked around that are informative to lean on. Um, one study that comes up a lot when, when people are basically arguing against the idea of scaling protein in any way. So some people say, hey, let's scale protein to fat-free mass. Let's scale it to total body mass. Sometimes people say, no need to scale whatsoever, flat dose. Everyone has basically the same protein requirements for, for optimizing hypertrophy. 
And a lot of times they'll point to a study by McNaughton and colleagues from 2016. And the title of the study is The Response of Muscle Protein Synthesis Following Whole Body Resistance Exercise is greater following 40 grams than 20 grams of ingested whey protein. And the title kind of gives away what they were getting at, but what they were trying to do was assess how lean body mass uh, influenced protein needs. And so it was kind of your classic acute study looking at, you know, single meal protein synthesis occurring in the resistance trained state. Uh, and, And they were looking at 20 gram versus 40 gram doses of whey protein. And they were looking at how responses differed in people with low lean body mass versus high lean body mass. And these, uh, they sampled resistance trained males and they basically divided it into two groups. So the, the individuals with lower lean body mass were less than or equal to 65 kilograms of lean body mass. And the high lean body mass group was 70 kilograms or greater. And so uh, in randomized order, the individuals in these two different groups would, you know, do resistance training and and then take a protein dose of either 20 or 40 grams. So what they found within this study was that uh, there really wasn't strong evidence to suggest that the protein needs were necessarily greater in the individuals who had higher lean body mass. However, there are some pretty important and pretty straightforward caveats for this study. Uh, First of all, it was looking at muscle protein synthesis, not hypertrophy, and looking at that over a short period of time. Previously on the show, I've talked about this a lot. I've written about it in a lot of depth in the mass research review, but we have to be really cautious about assuming that acute snapshots of muscle protein synthesis are necessarily going to be perfectly predictive of longitudinal hypertrophy outcomes. We have to be really careful about treating those things as if they're truly synonymous and interchangeable. Uh, Another shortcoming or kind of limitation of this study is that they only looked at two protein doses. It was 20 versus 40 grams. If, you know, when, when we look at studies that are trying to establish protein requirements for optimization, usually you you see a lot of different protein doses in the mix. So usually like we'll see some of the studies that look at identifying, uh, you know, total protein needs for the entire day. And they'll look at it as a continuous variable and say, okay, we see that as you go up and up and up with the protein dose at this point, you know, you, you've basically maxed things out. Or, or you've achieved a, a near optimal or near maximal response. So in this case, we're only looking at these two doses here, um, which doesn't allow us a lot of granularity for identifying a, a really tiny difference in this group versus that group. Uh, another issue uh, or, or limitation, I should say, is that fat-free mass obviously was dichotomized here. So there was a group with low lean body mass or low fat-free mass and a group with high um, so it was dichotomized in these two groups rather than just kind of leaving it as a continuous variable and looking at the relationship. Uh, you know, if you were trying to, if you had all the resources in the world and you could set up a study like this however you wanted to, ideally what you would like to do 
is, in my opinion, leave fat-free mass as a continuous variable, try a, a wide range of several different protein doses, and really look at that relationship in a more granular way, where you can say, here's the relationship between protein dose and fat-free mass and how, how different responses uh, are observed in these different um, uh, combinations of those variables. Uh, and so that, what, one thing I will say, yeah. so I, I'm, as you know, uh, very sympathetic to uh, dichotomizing a continuous variable, not being good practice. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think that's as big of an issue in this particular study as it is in many studies, because one, like one of the drawbacks of dichotomizing a continuous variable is like at the break point, sometimes you can have people sorted into different groups who are basically the same, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you were dichotomizing people by bench press strength, like maybe you have someone who bench presses 230 in a high bench press strength group and someone who benches 225 in a low bench press strength group. And it's like, yeah, it's basically the same. In this study, they did have a five kilo dead zone. Mm -hmm. um, so like they didn't have any subjects who had between 65 and 70 kilos of lean mass. So they, they did at least make sure that the highest lean body mass, low lean, low lean body mass person uh, was at least five kilos away from the lowest lean body mass, high lean body mass person. Yeah. And also the mean differences between groups were larger than the total range within each group. So the low lean body mass group, it was 59.3 uh, kilos on average versus 76.9. So that's a difference of what set a little bit over 17 kilos of lean body mass so like that that's a that's a pretty big difference and the range within each group was about 13 kilos so like i i do think that um you know keeping it a continuous variable and using a regression approach would have been preferable but i i do think uh they wound up with two groups that were were considerably different yeah and and meaningfully so yeah so what I aim to do here is just kind of lay out all of the limitations, but not necessarily um, indicating that they are of equal importance. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think having that dead zone is quite important. And, and so you do get, you get past that issue where you have people in two different groups who are virtually identical with the, uh, you know, uh, independent variable of interest here. So, so that is definitely a good point to bring up. Um, but, but I think sometimes people look at this study as saying, Oh, there's no point in revisiting this question. Like we've already got the research lean body mass. It doesn't matter if you have a ton or a little, you know, 20 grams or 40 grams, whatever the case is, is enough to max things out. No big deal. No need to worry about it beyond that. And I think sometimes people, neglect to dig into the details of this study and recognize we're talking about 15 participants per group split into these two different groups looking at only two different protein doses this is far from the type of study where you would say it is an open and shut case and there is no need to revisit that question mm -hmm. you know so there are several things that you could nitpick certain things that are bigger limitations than others ultimately i personally think the two biggest limitations are Anytime you're talking about a study with 15 people per group and saying, yeah, let's use this as a universally true finding that we don't need to revisit, 
obviously 15 people per group is not going to give you that level of confidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also the fact that it's looking at acute muscle protein synthesis rather than an indicator of direct hypertrophy. I think those are the two biggest reasons that we should, uh, you know, appreciate this study for sure uh, and and appreciate the effort that went into conducting it and, and, you know, yielding these results. But it's far from an open and shut case, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And so in answering this question about how we should scale uh, protein recommendations, I think it's potentially more informative to look at daily protein targets rather than meal by meal targets. Um, It gives us more data to work with. Um, There's just not a lot of these experimental studies looking at meal by meal, different lean body mass values and different protein servings and things like that. There's just not as much to work with. But I think if we step back and we look at the research on total daily protein targets and how different intakes lead to different results, we we can start to play around with how scaling might influence some of these things. So I think it's helpful to step away from the meal-by-meal focus and look at the day-by-day focus and see how different intakes relate to actual changes in hypertrophy over time. I think that can be really informative. So, you know, the kind of the classic paper that we talk about all the time, uh, we talk about its strengths and its weaknesses, you know, depending on the conversation. Uh, but there's a study by Morton and colleagues, the meta-regression, uh, and they scaled their protein recommendation to body mass, just total weight. And they identified that their kind of recommended range for protein intake for supporting hypertrophy over time was 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. And what's really convenient about that recommendation is that it matches up really well with a study by Bandigan and colleagues, which was looking more mechanistically at kind of a shorter time scale. So instead of looking at uh, hypertrophy over time, it, it was a more lab-based mechanistic study about, okay, how much over a short time scale is enough to kind of su- support these anabolic processes to an optimal degree And they found that their recommended range was in that range of like 1.7 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. So what's nice about these studies is that there's some overlap there. And what we can do if we feel so inclined, you know, if you make some assumptions uh, and some generalizations about the body composition of individuals in those studies, you can kind of back calculate a range that is roughly scaled to fat-free mass. And you could argue about exactly what assumptions you should make and, and, you know, how you should do that calculation. But I would say that these two studies would suggest that, generally speaking, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram within these samples worked pretty well. And that would be equivalent to somewhere in the range of 2 to 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass if you chose to scale to that. Now, You might wonder why these two studies uh, by Morton and Bandigan uh, scaled to body mass. And I really, I'm not certain, to be honest. Um, You know, it's it's very possible that they were just staying in line with the standard practice. You know, the RDA, the the recommended, uh, what does that stand for? Recommended Dietary Allowance, I think, something along those lines. Uh, The RDA uh, is, you know, basically what they say here, this is kind of a generic protein amount that uh, an adult should consume to to make sure they have enough prof- protein to just you know be healthy you know not mm-hmm. not have any adverse uh, consequences of insufficient protein. So 
it's it's very possible they were just kind of staying in line with the RDA and scaling to body mass so that it could be a nice apples to apples comparison. So they could say, oh, actually, if you're a lifter, you need at least double the RDA on the same kind of scaling footing, so to speak, in the same units. Um, it's also possible that they're just sticking what with, with what's been done in the past. You know, it's one of those things sometimes you start quantifying something a certain way, it becomes just the standard traditional way to do it. And you continue with that. You keep going on with it. Another thing, uh, you know, another reason that it might be so popular to scale protein to total body mass is that it is the simplest and the most straightforward way, um, you know, that, that you could do it. And it gives you an opportunity, um, to, to make sure that large people are getting more protein recommendations or higher protein recommendations than smaller people um, without having to do a whole bunch of body composition testing and things like that. You can say, okay, this gives more protein to bigger people who have more fat-free tissues that are doing you know, protein turnover uh, on a daily basis. So it's kind of the easiest and most straightforward way to give more protein to bigger people who presumably have more lean tissues that are turning over proteins on a regular basis. So a question, you know, the inverse, you know, that's kind of discussing why you would scale to body mass. But another question is, why would you scale to something else? And I kind of alluded to the fact that our lean soft tissues are making a huge day-to-day contribution to our actual protein turnover. Um, and I think it's difficult to argue that, you know, for example, someone who has maybe a hundred pounds of additional kind of extra adipose tissue, it's, it's a bit, a bit challenging to argue that that is making a huge upward impact on their day-to-day protein needs, just having, you know, additional adipose tissue around, and so there is some precedent for scaling things to fat-free mass because it's a little bit more uh, it's a little bit more generalizable to different body composition situations, different levels of adipose tissue. So there's a study by Dickerson and colleagues in 2017, um, and they were talking about protein recommendations for people with obesity who are in a caloric deficit. And I noticed that in this paper. They continuously scaled protein not to body weight, but to ideal body weight, um, which, you know, terminology there, I don't know about it, but, you know, it's basically just saying like, okay, if we assumed that you had lost enough of your fat-free mass to get, or enough of your adipose tissue, your fat mass to get down into, I forget what cutoff they use, but it's probably BMI based, you know, like if we assumed you had a BMI of X, here's what your body weight would be. You know, I, I think that basically they're, I, I forget exactly how they calculated ideal weight. Uh, but, but they were scaling to this ideal body weight metric, which is really a roundabout way, in my opinion, of scaling to fat free mass. It's kind of saying, okay, what is the body weight that we're kind of planning for here without a given amount of excess adipose tissue? So, uh, another interesting paper that you actually reviewed in mass a couple years back was by Malawani and colleagues, uh, from 2018. And, uh, they were looking at, uh, you know, basically identifying optimal protein intakes and in a sample of well-trained women, they mentioned that, uh, you know, it was pretty good to increase protein intakes, uh, in terms of net protein balance getting up to about 1.53 grams per kilogram per day, I believe. Uh, And so then they kind of looked at the top of their 95% confidence interval, and it was uh, 1.8 
five grams per kilogram per day. And those are scaled to, um, to total body, total body mass. Um, and so your takeaway in, in your mass article was basically that, um, if you look at, uh, these, these recommendations scaled to total body mass, protein needs might be a little bit lower in women compared to men. But if you scaled to fat-free mass, the recommendations are virtually identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, there are several differences physiologically between biological male, biological female. But uh, of course, in this instance, one of the things that would differ is the fact that at a given body weight, uh, a resistant-trained man is likely to have more fat-free mass than a resistance-trained woman and also likely to have a lower body fat percentage than a resistance-trained woman. So uh, this could indicate that there might be some subtle sex differences, but it also might indicate that scaling to fat-free mass simply does a slightly better job than scaling to total body weight. Um, so that that's open to interpretation to some extent, but overall, um, you know, I, I think when you look into this question, there's unfortunately not too much direct evidence that really gets at the question effectively. Um, it seems like things work reasonably well when you scale protein recommendations to just total body weight. Um, uh, and I think the there are practical challenges of using a flat protein recommendation. Uh, one of the practical challenges that comes to mind if you say, I'm going to give everyone the same recommendation. I'm not going to scale to total body mass uh, or to fat-free mass. Uh, One of the challenges is with a a flat protein dose, this puts more constraints on the diet of a smaller person, especially if you're looking at a low-calorie diet for weight reduction. Uh, if, If you're basically saying that the amount of protein needed to optimize hypertrophy in a larger person, if you're taking that protein dose and giving the same recommendation to a, a very small person with lower fat-free mass, it's very likely that they're going to be on a much lower calorie diet. And it's going to be very hard to work in enough fat and carbohydrate to make that diet adequately nutritious and palatable and enjoyable and practical to implement. So I think there are some practical constraints that make it a bit challenging to do a high flat dose for protein recommendations. So it, it kind of shifts you into a series of recommendations where if you're going to go the the approach with a flat protein amount for all people, you probably ought to be erring on the lower side um, just to make sure that you're not going to be putting people in too much of a bind with low calorie diets. Um, But I, I think that there's enough evidence to suggest, in my opinion, looking at, uh, you know, what seems to work for people in these applied studies, uh, scaling to total body mass seems to work pretty well. But then you get into other practical constraints when you're on the extremes of the body fat percentage spectrum, right? So when you're talking about uh, people who have a pretty substantial amount of excess adipose tissue, sometimes the, the protein recommendations just get really out of hand, really, really high protein to the point where you look at it. And it just even just like a quick gut feeling you look at it you're like that is so much protein like i'm really skeptical that this person needs that much protein to optimize their you know uh hypertrophy or fat-free mass retention when dieting you know things of that nature um so i think that intuitively you you do kind of reach that point where you can tell on the extremes of the body comp spectrum you're like it just doesn't really seem like scaling to body weight is really appropriate here. And in those scenarios, I, I think it becomes apparent that 
my my inclination is to to scale things to fat free mass rather than total body weight. And again, I, I can't really give you a single study that shows this is unequivocally why that's the best way to do it. But I'm I'm not particularly convinced by the study we talked about at the beginning by McNaughton and colleagues. I, I just don't think that gives us enough to drive, you know, total daily protein recommendations. I think it's too far removed when we look at muscle protein synthesis after a single meal. And I, I think that generally speaking, scaling to body weight seems to do fine in the longitudinal trials where that's how they dose protein. Uh, but I think when you look at the mechanistic reasons that larger people probably ought to need more protein, and then you look at the practical considerations, I think in, when you really dig into it, it seems most intuitive to me to scale recommendations to fat-free mass. And ultimately, that's that's why we do it that way in macro factor. So it's a good question, and you, you'll probably notice that I, I don't just like give a very specific, clear answer and say, here's the exact study that shows it. And it's because you really have to piece it together here and focus on piecing together research that is, you know, there's some longitudinal studies, there are some kind of mechanistic theoretical considerations to keep in mind, there are practical considerations to keep in mind. But a study that simply, as far as I'm aware, has not been done is the one where they say, this is a longitudinal study where we show conclusively that scaling the body weight is better than a flat recommendation across the board. And also scaling to fat free mass is even better than scaling to total body weight. Yeah. Uh, it would take quite a study to do that. Like it'd be quite an undertaking, but, um, yeah, that, that, that is my perspective on the question at hand. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, I, I would say I'm very sympathetic to the perspective that, uh, maybe scaling to total body mass isn't the best way to do it. Um, largely just from coming from the training side of things where for, decades when you were talking about like uh uh quantifying training dose like volume load was the only thing used or like the thing al almost exclusively used um where it's just like yeah we're, we're gonna do sets times weight times load and and that's what we're gonna use to normalize things and uh seems to work in the literature so that's what we're gonna go with um but then you look at the literature and it's like well this is this is the only thing you use like you haven't tested alternatives and then what what really broke the floodgates open was when people started doing more low load training research where you know you're normalizing the number of sets people are performing but total volume load is much higher with low load training but you're still getting pretty similar hypertrophy responses and that kind of got people thinking like eh maybe maybe sets is both simpler and better like it, it seems to be more predictive of hypertrophy than total volume load is um as you mentioned there there hasn't been an ideal study in the nutrition world to see if a similar dynamic could be in play with protein um and so I, i'm sympathetic to the argument that it might be um but yeah we we would just need uh some some pretty audacious studies to uh to to really dig into that yeah. And and it's possible that maybe there's something even better than, you know, even if we assume that scaling to body weight is better than a flat dose, and we assume that scaling to fat free mass is better than scaling to total body weight, even if we assume all that to be true, it's possible that there could be something even better uh, than that. Because uh, I would expect that 
muscle and non-muscle fat-free tissues have a different impact on protein needs. You know, um, there, there are, on one hand, you're thinking about the actual turnover of skeletal muscle proteins and how if, you know, if you grow bigger and bigger with more hypertrophy, maybe that factors into it. You also have to think about uh, splanchnic extraction, like extraction of gut tissues that are you know, taking some of that protein uh, for their own use before it, you know, makes it out uh, and ultimately makes it to skeletal muscle tissues. Um, you know, th th there's a lot to be considered there. Uh, so it it's very possible that even scaling to fat-free mass as if it's just a singular thing could be, uh, you know, an, an oversimplification. So you could get down into details as granular as you wish in terms of kind of theorizing and mechanistic speculation. But for me, uh, I think that recommendations currently do pretty well if you're using total body weight over kind of the the middle portion of the range of body body fat percentage values. Um, and but the the nice thing about fat free mass recommendations, uh, you know, scaling to fat free mass is that you can generalize and extrapolate that even into the extremes of uh, very far below average body fat levels and very far above average body fat levels. So for my use, uh, that comes in handy for me personally. Makes sense to me. Uh, cool. You got a question you want to answer here? Yeah. So a uh, question from Jamie Fay: How much can muscle fiber type vary between individuals? And what are the factors that determine what type or types, uh, e.g. genetics, hormones, exercise history, etc.? How do those things uh, influence your fiber types? Uh, I know that it's all on a spectrum, but I want to optimize my training by selecting appropriate rep ranges for individual muscles according to their dominant fiber type. Is there a way to determine whether you're fast or slow twitch dominant in a muscle or muscle group? I've read that testing your 80% that testing your 80% one rep max load for reps uh, versus your one rep max can provide insight, uh, but how reliable is such a metric? So yeah, uh, that's a good question, and there's a lot going on there, and it, it seems like there's um, a, a reasonable number of assumptions underpinning this question. So uh, yeah, let's let's dig into it. So first off, uh, the first question was basically, um, you know, how much can fiber types vary between muscles and between individuals? Um, most of the muscles that you'd kind of be focusing on training at the gym on average have approximately a 50-50 split of type 1 and type 2 fibers. Um, really the biggest exception to that is the soleus, uh, the calf muscle under your gastroc. For most people that's closer to like 80% slow twitch, 20% fast twitch. Uh, but kind of just looking at population averages, most muscles are somewhere in the vicinity of 50-50 with uh, so-called fast-twitch dominant athletes maybe being closer to 70-30 and so-called slow-twitch dominant athletes being closer to 30-70. Uh, um, so yeah, it, it can vary quite a bit between individuals and I think it's it's theoretically possible that it could vary quite a bit between muscles within an individual, although uh, citations looking at that in particular aren't immediately coming to mind. Um, 
And, and this question also asks, like, what is this influenced by? Is it influenced by genetics, hormones, training history, etc.? Um, and yeah, it is probably influenced by all of those things when you, uh, <laughs> when you see pretty large differences between individuals, um, you can, you can presume that there is probably a genetic component there. So someone who has say 70% fast twitch dominant quads, uh, their genetic profile is probably different from someone who has 70% slow twitch dominant quads, um, Although I don't think like a full genetic accounting for how you get to those fiber type differences has fully been done. Um, so I, I think just looking at the variability that exists, we can we can surmise that there is probably a genetic component, but that that piece of it isn't fully understood yet. Uh, and there is probably a hormonal component as well. Um, so sex hormones likely influence fiber type distributions, at least to some extent. Um, on average, uh, females have a slightly higher proportion of type 1 slow-twitch fibers than males, and vice versa for type 2 fibers. Um, I think that people often overstate the magnitude of the difference. Uh, we're talking about, like, maybe a 5-10% difference. So, kind of, as a population average, maybe males have 55% fast-twitch, 45% slow-twitch fibers, and for women, it's like 55% slow-twitch, 45% fast-twitch fibers, which ultimately and functionally, not a particularly large difference. So you probably don't need to be too concerned about that or, or proactively account for it when designing training programs for male and female athletes, but uh, that is a difference that does exist. Um, and likely has a and likely has uh, a, a hormonal contribution to it, uh, and also training can affect fiber types. So, up to this point, when answering the question, th this is this is something that uh, I'm almost positive I've talked about on the podcast before. But up to this point, when answering this question, I've just referred to fast twitch type two fibers, slow twitch type one fibers. Uh, but fiber types themselves exist on a spectrum where uh, for it, for an untrained person, typically you have uh, a pool of pure type 1 fibers where if you uh, took a biopsy, you isolated the fibers, uh, and you basically look to, look to see the different protein expression within the fibers, all of the myosin heavy chain heads would be type 1. So you have a pool of type 1 fibers. You have a pool of uh, type 2A fibers where, you know, same thing. You do a biopsy, separate the fibers. You're going to have some proportion of fibers where all of the myosin heavy chains are type 2A. Uh, and then you typically have some hybrid fibers as well. So though there there's a pretty sizable pool of type 1, type 2A hybrids, where uh, within a single fiber, there will be some type 1 heads and some type 2A heads. Uh, you'll probably have a pool of type 2A, type 2X hybrids, where um, the, the so-called super fast twitch type 2X fibers, you'll have some of those myosin heavy chain heads and some just normal fast twitch 2A myosin heavy chains. Uh, and then you can also have hybrids with all of the fiber types <laughs> within a single fiber. There will be some type 1 myosin, some type 2A myosin, and some type 2X myosin. And then as you train, 
basically those hybrid fibers tend to differentiate. So if you do a lot of endurance training, um, the type 1, type 2A hybrids, most of them will lose their type 2A myosin and become and express themselves more as just pure type 1 fibers. Uh, and the type 2A, type 2X hybrids, they'll lose their 2X myosin heavy chains and just become pure type 2A fibers. Uh, with resistance training, the type 1, type 2A hybrids go the opposite direction. They tend to differentiate to become pure type 2A fibers, or at least express themselves as such. Uh, but the 2A, 2X hybrids uh, still just lose their, their 2X myosin heavy chains. They, they also tend to become pure type 2A fibers. And so that's actually one of the signatures of, of training. So untrained people, you tend to see a relatively large pool of hybrid fibers, uh, I mean, I don't want to overstate it, like 20-30% of your, your fibers tend to be hybrids uh, for untrained people. And then if you take a biopsy of a trained athlete, no matter what type of training they're doing, you find very few hybrids. And most of the fibers you see are pure type 1 or pure type 2A. So that differentiation happens with training, and it does seem to be influenced by the type of training you do. So if you did a lot of heavy strength power training, uh, those hybrids would shift more in the 2A direction. Uh, and if you stopped doing any of that resistance training and just did endurance training, uh, they, the, the hybrids would probably shift and start being more type 1-ish. Um, so yeah, that's not going to make just a completely night and day difference taking you from like 80% fast twitch to 80% slow twitch. But it, it can shift on the margins uh, to, to an extent that might have some some actual functional implications. Um, so yeah, all of those things <laughs> mentioned in the question uh, can and do uh, influence fiber type to some extent. So now, when the rubber meets the road, uh, how can you know what, uh, what predominant fiber types you have? And much more importantly, uh, does it actually matter? Um, at least insofar as you know, you're trying to optimize strength gains, you're trying to optimize muscle growth, will training based on your fiber type actually result in net better training outcomes? So starting with basically fiber typing yourself, can you uh, figure out uh, if you're predominantly fast twitch or slow twitch, or if a particular muscle group is predominantly fast twitch or slow twitch? And unfortunately, the answer to that question is no. There have been three studies, I believe, that have looked at this um, using, so two of them used basically what was asked about in the question, like kind of uh, uh, differentiating based on performance in a rep max test. So the the popular approach to this was popularized by Charles Poliquin, uh, may he rest in peace, where basically you, you take a lift um, and, and you put either 80 or 70% of your one rep max on the bar. Uh, and with the 80% version, you do reps to failure. So, you know, let's say you squat 400 pounds, you put 320 pounds on the bar, you do a set to failure. If you get uh, about eight reps, I, I think seven to nine reps, uh, you would be classified as someone who's not fast twitch or slow twitch dominant. Uh, if you get six or fewer reps, you would be classified as a fast twitch dominant uh, athlete, at least for the muscles involved in the squat. 
And if you get 10 or more reps in that set, you would be classified as a slow twitch dominant squatter. Uh, for the 70% version, basically the cutoff is 12. So uh, 11 to 13 reps, you would be intermediate. If you got 14 or more, you'd be slow twitch. If you got uh, 10 or fewer, you'd be fast twitch. So so like that's how those tests work. Um, there have been two studies that use some variation on that. And they find that basically it's a very poor predictor of fiber types. Like if you um, <laughs> if you have someone do those tests and then actually like biopsy their quads, do the fiber types in their quads actually correlate with how they do on those tests? Uh, technically, yes, there is some amount of correlation there, uh, but not to a degree where it becomes predictive enough to be useful. Um and so, yeah, you, you can't use functional tests like that to estimate it well. There was another study where um, they used a combination of, I believe, a max power test on a dynamometer and then looking at the rate at which power output decreased during repeated reps on a dynamometer. And that did seem to be uh, predictive to some degree. But, you know, unless you have access to a research-grade dynamometer, you can't really do that test on yourself. Uh, and that style of testing hasn't been validated for just kind of like normal gym equipment. Um, so, yeah, really the only ways you can actually know what your fiber types are, uh, the gold standard, you get a biopsy, someone spends entirely too much time to actually, like, count which fibers pick up stains or, you know, you do like an actual uh, PCR test to look at the myosin heavy chains in each fiber. Um, like that's the gold standard, um, which, you know, obviously you can't do at home. And then there's another like proxy test that you see in research sometimes where they use proton magnetic resonance spectroscopy uh, to look at the relative carnosine content in muscles. So muscles with a higher carnosine content tend to have a greater relative proportion of type 2 fibers. Uh, so that's very cool because it's a non-invasive test. You don't have to uh, take a biopsy in order to run that test. Uh, but also, I assume you don't have a proton magnetic resonance spectroscoper in your, in your house or at your local gym. So that's also not really a test you can do on yourself. And outside of having access to that equipment, there really isn't a reliable way to know what your predominant fiber type is or what the predominant fiber type of a particular muscle is. Uh, so that may sound bad. It's like, oh no, I can't have access to this information. How am I going to optimize my training for the fiber types I have? And here's the good news. You don't, you don't need to. Uh, <laughs> based on the research we have, doesn't seem to matter very much. Um, there's this popular idea that dates back decades and decades that if you train... Uh, in a manner that seems to lean into the physiological characteristics of a particular fiber type, you will predominantly stress that particular fiber type, leading to more growth uh, and maybe larger strength gains as well. So uh, type 1 fibers are more endurant, they're more fatigue resistant. So the idea being if you do uh, really high rep training, that's going to predominantly stress your type 1 fibers, leading to more type 1 fiber growth. And vice versa, type 2 fibers, they're more powerful. Um, they don't actually seem to be that much stronger. That's a common misconception when you scale for fiber size. Maximal contractile force 
is either the same in type 1 and type 2 fibers or only very slightly higher in type 2 fibers, whatever. But they are definitely more powerful. They have a greater uh, shortening velocity. So the idea being if you do heavy training or power training, uh, that's going to predominantly stress your type 2 fibers, leading to more type 2 growth. Uh, and some people even push it farther and say like, oh, well, type 2 fibers seem to be more prone to hypertrophy than type 1 fibers are. So like you really need to lean into power-based training in order to fully grow your type 2 fibers. And, and that's the, the ticket to huge gains. Um, anyways, best I can tell, uh, those those recommendations were pulled from someone's asshole and weren't actually based on any actual evidence. Um, studies where people are exposed to different styles of training, biopsies are taken, and you actually look to see like, hey, does this style of training affect fiber type, uh, specific type 1 and type 2 fiber growth uh, better or worse than this other style of training? Those studies have come around really within like the last decade or so for the most part. And for the, uh, the vast majority of them find it doesn't really matter. Um, there are, there is one, one kind of outlier study uh, you can point to. I believe it was uh, the high load, low load study by Schwenke in 2012. Should have put this in the notes. I'm pretty sure that's the study I have in mind though. Uh, but that study did find way, way more type 2 fiber growth with uh, heavier training than lighter training. And so, like, that is a study people will sometimes point to. Uh, but best I can tell, the overall findings of that study have never been replicated. So that was that is the one study where high load, like, 8RM training uh, led to way more growth than low load 20RM training. Uh that's the only study that's ever found that. Um, every other study I've seen where people take uh, loads above about 30% of 1RM, do the same number of sets to failure, tend to find similar overall hypertrophy between kind of heavier or moderate load training and low load training. Uh, that's the one study that didn't. And that's also the one study where there did maybe seem to be a fiber type specific growth response. Uh, so until more studies have overall results that are similar to that study. I personally don't put too much stock in it. All of the other research in the area tends to suggest low load training. It's good for growing your type 1 fibers. Also good for growing your type 2 fibers. Heavier training, good for growing your type 2 fibers. Also good for growing your type 1 fibers. So uh, yeah, it doesn't really seem like you need to train in a specific way to optimize type 1 versus type 2 fiber growth. Uh, so yeah, you it, it, you can't really figure out your fiber type breakdown with with non-invasive tests and without expensive lab equipment. Uh, but the good news is that you don't need to. Um, you just train, and both of your both of your fiber types seem to grow just fine. Good stuff. That's a relief. Less stuff to worry about. Yes, sir. Um, all right, I'm gonna go quick with one here. Uh, in the interest of time, I got a question. Uh, I've got a few people who reached out to me about a new study on artificial sweeteners. Um, and uh, so this study was called Artificial Sweeteners and Cancer Risk Results from the Nutrinet Sante Population-Based Cohort Study. Um, and, and so this, uh, this study came out. A lot of headlines uh, resulted from it. Um, kind of just re... Uh, 
just kind of fanning the flames on the general concerns of uh, artificial sweeteners potentially increasing cancer risk. So um, it's been an interesting history with artificial sweeteners. Um, and, you know, they, they each are distinct compounds. So you, you can't necessarily paint with too broad a brush when you discuss their research. But back in the day, there were some rodent studies suggesting, I don't know, aspartame looks kind of scary, might cause some cancer. Uh, very thorough review of that data uh, among experts in the area suggested, yeah, we don't think that these rodent studies are generalizable and robust. Therefore, you see that aspartame largely embraced uh, across the world as a safe food ingredient. Uh, but, you know, there, there are a lot of these studies that kind of revisit the topic and look at you know, within certain cohorts, um, you know, what what kind of relationships do we see here between artificial sweetener intake and cancer risk? So uh, with this one, um, you know, the, the, the general takeaway was that, uh, you know, artificial sweeteners increased uh, cancer incidence within this cohort. Um, that was uh, particularly true of aspartame and also uh, ACE-K, um, Acesulfame potassium, uh, not not much of a relationship for sucralose, oddly enough. Hell yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, a lot of people have sent the study to me um, you know, a little bit concerned and rightfully so about the headlines. But when you dig beneath the surface a little bit, uh, it doesn't look quite as scary as some of the uh, some of the headlines would lead you to believe. Um, and I. I think that people are just trying to write interesting articles that reflect the paper. I, I'm not saying that people are trying to blow it out of proportion intentionally, but with a paper like this, one of the first places I look uh, is just the the raw incident rates in, in these different groups. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that we should ignore all other models and only look at raw incidence rates or anything like that. But I, I do think they're informative for just kind of setting uh, like, okay, what are we seeing here just in a very broad uh, kind of overview? So uh, we're talking about the cancer incidence rate in these three different groups. There were non-consumers of artificial sweeteners, there were low consumers, and there were high consumers. So the raw incidence rates for getting some type of cancer during this uh, observation period where it was 3.1% for non-consumers, it was 3.9% for low consumers, and 3.2% approximately for high consumers. So that alone, you know, kind of sets our frame of reference for this, the discussion across this entire spectrum of intakes. We're talking about 3.1 to 3.9% as the incidence rates. Uh, and also in the unadjusted models, completely raw numbers that we're seeing here, we see that the low consumer incidence rate was actually a little bit higher than the high consumer. So obviously, you know, you don't want to get too, um, you, you don't want to put too much stock into that until you do adjusted models with covariates and things like that. But just a quick survey of these numbers, you would not look at that and say, if you consume a lot of artificial sweeteners, you are totally screwed. And, and I also think it's... Uh... It's useful here just to make explicit the difference between relative and absolute risk because mm -hmm. the the headline that I'd been seeing all over the place, and I mean the the headline implied by just the abstract of the paper, is that for for a particular given increase in artificial sweetener consumption, 
uh, risk of cancer goes up by approximately 20%. I think it was like 18% or something like that. Yeah. Um, which, you know, seems like kind of a big, scary number, but based on the range of data we're looking at, it's, it's in terms of absolute risk, it's 3.1 on the low end, 3.9 on the high end. So, you know, going from 3% to 4% risk, that's a 33% increase, also a 1% increase, depending on on how you look at it uh, in terms of relative or absolute terms. So that that's always something you need to keep in mind when we're having discussions about things like this. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the reasons that I'm not super concerned about this finding is just kind of using those numbers to kind of set our frame of reference here. Um, but digging deeper, um, just a few things that I would bring up. Um, I don't think that we have really good, we, I don't think we have a really clear kind of causal pathway drawn out with all the mechanisms filled in for how uh, ACE-K would cause cancer and for how aspartame would cause cancer. And we would need those two to be drawn out separately because we're talking about completely different compounds with completely different chemical structures. So um, just the idea of saying like, well, artificial sweeteners, they're not natural, therefore they give you cancer, like that's not good enough for a mechanism. And I think there's a lot more work to be done. If we're going to assume that this association observed here is causal, there's a lot more work that needs to be done to actually figure out the mechanistic underpinnings for why that would be, uh, for how these would actually cause cancer. Um, but more importantly, you know, the first thing you want to look at with this type of study is, are these findings robust and are they generalizable? Because what we want to see is this finding, are, can we look at this finding in this group of people and extrapolate it out into other groups of people? Like, is this something that people outside of this cohort should be concerned about because it truly does relate to them? And when I was kind of pondering that question, I found one thing that was really fascinating was this finding doesn't even necessarily generalize within this cohort. Um, and I mean, that you could argue against that statement by kind of getting into the details, but um, within this cohort, just determining, you know, if there's a link between artificial sweeteners and cancer uh, is really complicated because there was a previous study from this same cohort that was like a couple years ago um, that found that artificially, uh, it, it, it found that the consumption of sugary drinks was significantly associated with overall cancer risk, but it found that artificially sweetened beverages were not associated with cancer. And so the distinction is that in this particular paper, this newer one, they were looking at total consumption of artificial sweeteners, not just looking at artificially sweetened beverages. Um, and so they were looking at, for example, adding in like tabletop sweeteners that were added to foods and things like that. So, mm -hmm. um, without question, artificially sweetened beverages are a huge contributor to total intake of artificial sweeteners. But to me, I find it very, very surprising that within a cohort, uh, you know, there would be a truly causative link between artificial sweetener intake, but not intake of artificially sweetened beverages. You know, <laughs> so I, I think I made a face when you when you first mentioned that because I was I was just like, where else are people getting a ton of artificial sweeteners in their diets such that you don't see this association with beverages, but you do with total artificial sweetener consumption? Um, like, 
I, I was having a hard time coming up with where do where would the rest of the non-beverage artificial sweeteners come from? And the, the only things that immediately came to mind, and, you know, this is me on the spot. Um, I might be overlooking something obvious, but I don't know, man, like fucking health foods and supplements like that. That's about all I can come up with. Um, yeah. And like, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be stunned if like maybe if those types of products are like, let's just say that this relationship is real and that it is causal and that something's driving it. Um, like one of the things we talk about on this podcast from time to time is just like a lot of supplement manufacturers have like kind of, kind of dodgy sourcing or manufacturing practices. Like, uh, there was, there was a whole issue with dangerous levels of heavy metal contamination and protein supplements a few years back. Like, I don't know, man, if it's not the beverages and it's like maybe some of that other stuff, might not might not even be the artificial sweeteners doing it like even well i guess i just said assuming it is causal so i just shot myself in the foot but you 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 get what i'm saying here like if it's food products with artificial sweeteners it's that would that leads my brain down a road of uh food products that i already have negative associations with so i don't know so they they're um They've got a figure that indicates about 53% uh, of the artificial sweeteners were coming from soft drinks with no added sugar. So your kind of typical diet beverage. Mm -hmm. Um, 29% was coming from tabletop sweeteners, which seems like a ton to me. But there you go. Uh, This this might be what surprises you here. Uh, Almost 8% was coming from yogurt and cottage cheese products that had artificial sweeteners. I I can see that. I can see Um, that. Another 4% from soft drinks that had both added sugar and artificial sweeteners. Uh, Fruit-based beverages and purees, about a percent and a half. And then other was like 4%. Mm -hmm. So they, they did go into detail about where these sweeteners were coming from. But again... I just really struggle with the robustness and the generalizability of a finding where even within this cohort, you know, because the the place that most people go with this when they see this headline is, oh, shit, I need to stop having diet soda. And I guess I'll switch to like regular sugared beverages, like maybe fruit juice or Mm -hmm. maybe a full sugar soda, whatever the case may be. But even within this cohort artificially sweet artificial uh artificially sweetened beverages were not associated with cancer risk but sugar sweetened beverages were and even 100 percent fruit juice was significantly associated with cancer within this cohort and so uh if the utility of this is to basically find an alternative beverage for your uh you know artificially sweetened beverage uh it doesn't leave a lot on the table, really, because uh, if you're going for fruit juice, if you're going for a full sugar beverage based on this study, it wouldn't necessarily indicate that that's a trade off that would be indicated. Um, and I thought one other thing that kind of uh, relates to that, I, as I was going through this, I was thinking, OK, so what exactly is the alternative here? Because uh, usually when people talk about artificial sweeteners, it's about the trade off between having something that's artificially sweetened versus something that is sweetened with sugar or some other kind of caloric sweetener like honey or something like that. Uh, 
So what they did here in this study was they broke it down into like a grid with six categories. So it was like you're either eating above the sugar recommendation or or you're below it. So high sugar intake or low. Um, and then also you had no artificial sweeteners uh, or low artificial sweetener intake or high. So you've got for artificial sweeteners, three categories, none, low or high. And then for sugar, you're above the re recommendation or you're below. So the hierarchy that they kind of set up in one of the supplementary figures was the best case scenario for cancer risk based on the, this cohort, these findings, was low sugar intake and no artificial sweeteners. Um, fair enough, not very fun for your taste buds. Uh, then they've got this kind of next best thing, which uh, was you know slightly elevated in terms of cancer risk, again, within this cohort. And it was, you know, if you had low sugar intake and low artificial sweetener intake, if you had low sugar intake and high artificial sweetener intake, or if you had high sugar intake and no artificial sweetener intake, all three of those were pretty much equivalent in terms of the uh, cancer incidence or you know, the, the hazard ratio calculated. The worst case scenario was, was two categories or, or two kind of combinations of these categories high sugar with low artificial sweetener intake or high sugar with high artificial sweetener intake. So it would seem for some reason that the, you know, if we're assuming that there, you know, really is a deleterious impact here of artificial sweeteners, it seemed to be most pronounced in the people who had high sugar intakes. But when you look at the people who had really, or who were below the daily recommendation for sugar, it really wasn't so bad. You know, it was this kind of middle of the road kind of pack where there was all these different combinations of sugar and artificial sweeteners that weren't as good as the low sugar, no sweetener group. Uh, but still, it, it wasn't getting into those really high elevations that were observed in people who were eating a lot of sugar in combination with a lot of artificial sweeteners, um, the, the low or the high artificial sweetener group. So in a nutshell, uh, you might be looking at, at these findings and being like, man, these seem kind of contradictory, kind of counterintuitive. There doesn't seem to be that clear of a dose-response relationship. Um, within the cohort, it looks like the way you define artificial sweetener intake has a huge impact. Uh, like the source of, of the artificial sweeteners has a big impact. Overall, I'm just not really convinced that these are these associations reported are truly robust and generalizable and have a huge impact on cancer risk. So I personally, I look through this paper, I don't find it to be particularly concerning. doesn't mean the researchers did anything wrong, but that is kind of the nature of nutritional epidemiology. If, if you put all of your food-related decisions into a singular finding from nutritional epidemiology, you would have a very confusing time trying to put together a diet that had, you know, no potentially deleterious uh, uh, outcomes likely. Uh, now, you, you've been making several frowny faces. It looks like your gears are turning. Yeah, so I'll, I'll admit something. Uh, a lot of the people who sent this study to you were probably people who originally sent this study to me. They mm -hmm. said, what's your take on this? And I said, I, I don't have one. This, this is in my area. Uh, message Eric instead. He's the yeah. nutrition guy. So I'm I'm just now looking at some of the stuff in here. I just want to know more about the French food supply because yeah. I feel like virtually a hundred percent of Americans consume 
at least some amount of artificial sweeteners every day. But apparently they they um, based this grouping on 24-hour food recalls um, and like in excess of 60% of the people in this study said that they consumed nothing with any artificial sweeteners in it the previous day. And like that very well may be correct. I have no idea what the artificial sweetener game in France is like, but damn, that's a that's a much higher number than than I would have anticipated. So anyway, that doesn't uh that doesn't influence the the interpretation of the study at all. Um but I found that bit surprising. It also, is surprising, yeah. Also, have there been any people talking about how this study even even if the results are accurate uh and maybe there is a causal link uh although to be clear i'm not sold on it have there been people talking about how this uh is predominantly in female subjects no so just looking at this like 80 percent of the subjects were women um and i'm certainly not trying to say that cancer risk in women is unimportant uh but you know my social media feed i've been seeing a lot of dudes posting about this um and i just don't know how concerned they need to be because like if there were to be like a sex interaction i don't know if there were enough males in this sample to really tell much about that yeah but yeah the the biggest thing that jumped out at me is (laughs) that uh apparently like 60 plus percent of the people in this study had consumed no artificial sweeteners the previous day and that just blew my mind i thought uh i thought everyone was was just out there uh with at least some amount of art- artificial sweeteners in their diet so it, it says here uh caution should be taken before extrapolating to the whole adult french population uh participants were more likely to be women to have higher educational and uh socio-professional levels and to have health-conscious behaviors, uh, and to be older on average. Uh, they, they said that those might contribute to the fact that uh, artificial, artificial sweetener intake levels were lower than reported uh, in, the, in the broader French population. Gotcha. So, um, you know, the, I think um, one of the challenging things with p- papers like this is I think that the research, researchers did a very nice job with it, uh, and they're there is room for an interpretation in in which you say, I think that these are very competent researchers who did a nice job carrying out the tasks that they set out to carry out. But I don't find the, the actual finding itself to be particularly frightening, nor am I convinced that there is a causal relationship we're seeing here that will generalize uh, outside of this cohort. And as we see, you know, like, like I said, one of the first things that I think about when I, whenever I hear um, a study about artificial sweeteners is all the people who drink a full sugar soda and say, ah, I told you switching over to diet was pretty bad. And so like the first thing I go is like, well, what, what actually would happen if based on this cohort, we changed all of our full sugar beverages over to diet beverages that had artificial sweeteners. Uh, And like I said, based on the previous publication from this cohort itself, it would suggest that, um, you know, cancer uh, risk was elevated for full sugar beverages, but not for artificially sweetened beverages. So 
at the very least, uh, the, the, the conclusion that's hard to argue with is the fact that there's a lot more going on here than just a very straightforward, strong, robust, causative relationship by which choosing any artificially sweetened uh, food or, or drink product is going to be a really regrettable choice. Yeah. Um, the, the numbers just don't really seem to bear that out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Do you want to do one more? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, how, what, what time are we at? I'm just so far over, uh, hour and 20. I'm fine saving them. Uh, okay, cool. cool. Let's do, uh, let's do the nitrate one. We'll collaborate on that one and okay. then I'll play us out. So, uh, we did get a question. This is a question we get a lot. Uh, and actually Greg, you found this one from Instaterra. And uh, I figure we'll team up on this because you're you're into food science, which is relevant here. And then uh, the questions about nitrate, which is uh, a topic, one of the topics of my dissertation research. So the question was, what are our thoughts on the health impact of nitrates outside of performance? Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about the performance benefits, um, but this is outside of performance. Uh, the question continues. Seems like there is a popular consensus that leafy green nitrates are healthy but nitrates in meat are linked with cancer through a nitrate to nitrite to nitrosamine conversion in the gut. Is there any good evidence out there? So there's a really nice review paper by uh, Nathan Bryan, and the, the title is Inorganic Nitrite and Nitrate, Evidence to Support Consideration as Dietary Nutrients. And Nathan Bryan has done a lot of research in the, nit the nitrate space, um, I've even seen him go so far as to argue it should be considered a vitamin. Um, you know, so, so he's, he's done a lot of really cool nitrate research, but they have a nice little figure where they talk about the potential benefits, which are cardiovascular in nature, weighed against the potential risks. So on the benefit side, you've got lower blood pressure, improved vascular function, lower inflammation, improved exercise capacity, improved mitochondrial function, lower triglycerides, less heart attacks, less strokes. And these are cardio, cardiovascular benefits, presumably of consuming a diet rich in you know, a lot of plant-based uh, nitrate sources. Um, and then this is all balanced against the kind of singular risk that you hear about, which is the potential formation of N-nitrosamines, which are uh, presumed to be uh, carcinogenic. You know, there's, there, there is research that these compounds can be carcinogenic, but the relationship between dietary nitrate and cancer is, is really complicated and really messy. Um, so intuitively, one might assume that because these nitrosamines can be carcinogenic and they can be derived from nitrate, the idea would be that regardless of nitrate source, you know, a high nitrate diet is likely to increase cancer risk. Um, but the research doesn't really bear that out. And there's actually an interesting study by Song and colleagues where they found that high nitrate intake was actually associated with lower risk of gastric cancer, which the whole nitrosamine idea theoretically would have a, a, a particularly uh, high degree of relevance to gastric cancer specifically. So nitrate in this study was actually associated with reduced risk of gastric cancer, but the consumption of nitrites, so not nitrates, but nitrites, and uh, NDMA, which is a nitrosamine, did seem to be risk factors for cancer within this particular study. Um, but what, what's really fascinating when you dig into some of the epidemiological evidence assessing this question 
it looks like uh, you're really not going to get any pushback if you say plant-derived nitrate sources, the fruits and vegetables that are high in nitrate, are unequivocally healthful additions to the diet. Uh, you're not going to get any pushback. Uh, the, the place where there is some really interesting debate is whether or not uh, processed meats uh, with with high nitrate and nitrite content, whether or not those might be carcinogenic or risk factors for gastric cancer. Some research would suggest, suggest yes. Some would suggest uh, a fairly neutral effect. And so the question is about, uh, you know, what is the context of, of the ingestion of, of those particular nitrate and nitrite products? Mm -hmm. And when you look at the epidemiological evidence and some of the mechanistic evidence, it would suggest that when you're consuming nitrate in combination with fiber and vitamin C and other antioxidants, uh, it doesn't seem very likely that you're going to get a tremendous amount of nitrosamine formation. Uh, and certainly it doesn't seem like these different plant-based nitrate sources that contain fiber and plenty of antioxidants, they simply don't seem to be increasing the risk of gastric cancers to an appreciable degree. Uh, the question is, and this is more getting into the food science component, how might that differ when instead of talking about raw spinach, you know, how does that differ when we're talking about a processed meat product with a ton of nitrite content that is cooked at a really high heat and consumed in the absence of fiber? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked. Uh, so the so what's going on with with vegetables that you're getting nitrate or nitrite from uh, versus meat, it's a completely different story. Um, so when people talk about uh, nitrates in meat, there's not actually that much nitrate left in the meat. Um, so if you're using pink curing salt, uh, generally, um, I, I think what's most accessible to consumers is potassium nitrate. I think on an industrial scale, they generally use sodium nitrite, uh, but they accomplish the same basic purpose. You, you make a brine with them, you soak the meat in it, or you just kind of let them soak into the meat directly. Um, and the, the whole purpose of those, historically, what people thought they did, is that they would help preserve the meat and present the or prevent the growth of uh, the, the, I think, bacteria, maybe mold. I think it's a bacteria. Uh, whatever. The botulinum toxin. Basically, you're trying to avoid botulism, and they thought that treating meats with nitrate would help prevent botulism. Um, anyway, turns out that that's not entirely true. Um, it seems to be the salt that you cure the meat with that helps a lot more uh, than the nitrates or nitrites. But the nitrates or nitrites add a characteristic flavor to food that people often go for. Um, like if you've ever wondered like, hey, why does corned beef brisket taste very different from just like a smoked brisket? It's the nitrates that they were treated with. That, that was the main thing. Um, and also, they help preserve color. So if you cure a meat for a long time, uh, typically the, the iron and the hemoglobin will oxidize and the meat will turn kind of brownish, which uh, functionally is fine. Doesn't really seem to make much of a difference uh, in terms of, of taste or quality of the product, uh, but... It looks bad. Like it, it looks like the meat is rotting. Consumers don't like that. Uh, and so, what the nitrates or nitrites are actually doing is they they get into the meat, and then the nitrates or nitrites themselves break down 
uh, and one of the end products is our old friend uh, nitric oxide, old NO, uh, which has an affinity for the heme group in hemoglobin, or yeah, in hemoglobin or myoglobin. Um, and so basically, it it just hooks on to that uh, uh, exposed part of the iron that can accept something else, typically oxygen when you're alive. Uh, and so it, it hooks on there and it prevents the iron from oxidizing, which keeps the cured meat pink, uh, which is a more attractive color to people, stops it from turning brown. Um, and still like from like an industrial food production perspective, even though we now know it's not actually necessary to prevent botulism, it does speed up the curing process relative to just salt. So, you know, a, a product that maybe would have taken a month of curing in just like a salt solution or a sugar and salt solution, maybe you can get it uh, shelf stable and ready to rock with after two weeks if you add some, some nitrate salts into the mix. Uh, but basically... Um, th that's what it's doing. The nitrates, nitrites break down, form nitric oxide, and that bonds to the, to the, uh, the heme group and the hemoglobin. And that's what basically makes it do its stuff. So in the end, you don't actually have that much nitrate or nitrite left in the product. Uh, you just have nitric oxide there bound to the heme, um, which in and of itself, even if you're not cooking it at high temperatures might be problematic. So that's called nitrosyl heme, which I don't think this has been proven, but there's some evidence to suggest that nitrosyl heme itself might be carcinogenic. Uh, and then also you have kind of a very broken down end product in the form of nitric oxide there in relatively high quantities within the meat itself. So then when you expose it to high heat, chemical reactions take place and you can get pretty rapid uh, nitrosamine formation, which... I think is known or even is more strongly suspected to be carcinogenic. Um, so yeah, basically you, you just don't have that same dynamic in play with plants. Like you have the, the nitrates there intact when you're consuming them, they are nitrates. They're not <laughs> nitric oxide bound to heme. Um, and so, yeah, just, just all of this shit that can happen to make them carcinogenic isn't really present. Like, you're consuming them as nitrates, they're being absorbed as nitrates, and, and you're good to go. Whereas for cured meats, the nitrate salts break down to the nitric oxide that is already bound to the heme group, may in and of itself be carcinogenic, we're not totally sure, but it definitely increases the probability of that nitric oxide hooking up with other protein compounds to form nitrosamines. Um, so yeah, the, the starting... The thing you're starting with, the nitrates, very similar, but uh, what you're actually dealing with by the time it comes to cook and eat it, it's a it's a very different situation. So that's why uh, cured meats might be problematic when it comes to cancer risk, but nitrates from vegetables uh, don't seem to be. And also, I'll note, there's a, um, what I think to be a very sneaky grift going on in kind of the natural food community where uh, what you can do if you want to tell people like, oh, like, yeah, you're, you're buying this cured meat from, uh, from like Whole Foods or something. And like, we don't use the nitrate salts like the bad guys do. We use uh, nitrates from celery. So it's good for you. 
It's the same fucking shit, man. You extract the nitrates from anywhere, you put it in meat, it's going to break down to nitric oxide. Like, if you've cured meat and, and there's nitrate uh, in that process, the end result of the meat is the same. Uh, it doesn't matter if it comes from a factory and people make nitrate salts and that's what you use, or if you just extract the nitrate straight from celery. The, the cured meat product that you wind up with is the same. Uh, there's every reason to suspect that it's going to have similar effects on on cancer risk. Uh, so yeah, if you come across that in a supermarket, it says, oh, cured with with uh, nitrate from celery. That's a scam. Uh, it costs them more to cure meat that way, so they're charging you more for it, and ultimately you don't get anything in return. So uh, yeah, if you're going to get cured meat, which... Like, no, hey, cured meat is delicious. Uh, just get the cheap stuff that's made with nitrate salts, or better yet, um, potentially go for cured meats that weren't cured with nitrate salts. Again, you can cure meats just fine with just salt or a mixture of salt and sugar that will still cure the meat. It might not be quite as attractive to look at. It might be a little more brownish, not quite as, as bright, vibrant pink or red, uh, but it should still be perfectly safe to eat. So... Um, and honestly, I don't, I don't know if meat cured without nitrates affects cancer risk. Like in, in the epidemiological studies, everything's kind of all lumped together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the vast majority of cured meats do cure the meats with nitrates. Like, I, I don't know if the relative consumption of non-nitrate cured meat is a large enough component of the diet yet to actually investigate whether that affects cancer risk. But, you know, it's it's possible that meat that's just cured with salt and sugar would have a similar impact on cancer risk as just consuming any other meat product would. Uh, don't know if that's the case or not, but that's at least a, a potential thing to keep in mind uh, as, as we're looking at research going forward. Um, but yeah, long story short, cured meat versus nitrates and plants very different things and eating vegetables still seems to be generally pretty good correct um because of science um all right so to play us out uh i obviously went on a vacation which uh opened up room for greg to pull the scheme that he pulled with forming his union but uh man i went to the outer banks for a a little weekend trip the outer banks in north carolina unequivocal enthusiastic travel recommendation if you ever have a chance to go um you may know it from the teen drama outer banks on television i have no idea what that's about uh i don't know what the uh common expectation is that people have for like what the outer banks is like as as a place um but man it is such a cool place there's so much history there so i was at roanoke island where they have the lost colony i had never heard of that which probably says too much about my education growing up but Mm -hmm. if you've never heard of the lost colony over at roanoke island look it up it was so fascinating the north carolina coast i learned is called the graveyard of the atlantic there were over two thousand ships that sunk there since like the mid 1500s and like i was just walking down the beach and saw something i was like oh what's that it was the the steam stack from a sunken ship from 1862 like so cool so learn so much about the history of the area and of course the outer banks is where the wright brothers uh you know had the first um 
the first flight, you know, the first airplane, heavier than air flying machine. North Carolina, first in flight. Glad we glad yeah. we all agree here on this podcast. Exactly. A couple of strong Buckeyes, a couple of good Ohio guys that it went down. It was in our union contract that you have to admit that North Carolina is first in flight. Yes, that is where the first flight occurred. Uh, so anyway, they've got the Wright Brothers Museum. And if you're into science, I could not recommend that museum high, highly enough. Uh it was so cool because, like, you know that achieving flight obviously was an incredible feat, but I never really took time to think about what the process would have looked like. Um, and so here's a couple of guys. Uh, neither of them had a high school diploma, and they really wanted to fly. They own the bicycle shop, and, you know, they like messing with things and engineering and stuff. And for a while, they were toiling and using all the textbook equations uh, and, and all the coefficients that had been calculated. And at a certain point, they're like, dude, I don't think these are right. <laughs> you know, they're like, I see the textbook here. I just don't think they're correct. And so they basically threw out the textbooks, built a wind tunnel and recalculated all the shit they needed to make it work. And they're like, oh, yeah, th those coefficients were all way off. But, but we got the right numbers. And I mean, that was a really pivotal part of them making it work. Um, so it, it's crazy to see them like they're they're in a town of 60 people down there at Kitty Hawk building wind tunnels, uh, recalculating the numbers that the textbooks should have had. But they're just like, ah, those aren't right. Uh, and, and so then they, they make this happen. It's this incredible feat. And one of the Wright brothers go, goes from like having the first flight where they covered like, I think 120 feet or something like that, like this comically short distance within his lifetime, he observes a human flying fast enough to break the sound barrier. And like just seeing the trajectory of how innovations in flight took off, like I never before that considered myself really into flight uh, or aviation or anything like that. But just as someone who appreciates the scientific method, it was such a cool thing to explore. So if you have any interest in like, there, there's just so much history to be found there. So if you ever have the opportunity, uh, I would highly encourage you to check out the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Very, very cool place. Had a great time. Uh, all right. So I think that does it for this audio update or audio update. Does it for this podcast episode. Uh, as always, uh, we appreciate you for checking it out and we will be back soon with another one. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.